0: You're listening to episode 128 of the Pastor-Writer Podcast, conversations on reading, writing, and the Christian life. I'm your host, Chase Replogle. Today's conversation is one that I've been looking forward to for some time. I'm joined on the podcast by Eric Peterson, the son of Eugene Peterson, who is himself a pastor and a writer. This week marks the second anniversary of the passing of Eugene Peterson, and Eric joins me to talk about a collection of letters that he's recently published between him and his father exploring the pastoral vocation and the meaning of pastoral work. To be able to have more words written by Eugene, even after his passing, is an incredible gift. And being able to read through these letters has been really meaningful for me personally. I think if you pick up a copy of the book, you'll have the same experience. And my conversation with Eric reflects uh, so much that's to be valued about Eugene's work and the gift that he's been to so many pastors. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Well, I'm joined on the podcast today by Eric Peterson. Eric is the founding pastor of Colbert Presbyterian Church in Eastern Washington, where he's served since 1997. His first book, "Wade in the Water, represents a pastoral perspective on the power of baptism. He joins me today to talk about a pair of books that recently released, including "Letters to a Young Congregation" and "Letters to a Young Pastor," a collection of letters written by Eric's father, Eugene Peterson. Eric, it's a uh, it's really an honor and a privilege. Uh, I was mentioning to you before uh, when I saw these books were coming out to be able to have them and to be able to have something uh, something more to read from your dad's work too was uh, really a, bl- <laughs> a surprise and a blessing. Uh, but your letters as well and letters of congregation have just been uh, a blessing, and so it's uh, it's an honor to have you on. I'm really excited excited. excited about the conversation.
1: Thank you, Chase. It's good to be with you.
0: Well, maybe a great place to start for a little perspective. Uh, For those who may not know as much about your work or ministry, I would love to hear how you ended up in the pastoral vocation. What was that like? What brought you to pastoral ministry?
1: It's kind of a long, complicated story. Um, It's it's characterized for me by a fair amount of reluctance. Um, Largely, it's because um, I come from a family of pastors on both my paternal and maternal sides, um you probably know that my um uh, uh, that Eugene's grandmother was an Assemblies of God pastor, as was her son in law. And um and then they're just there are these Presbyterians. You know, my dad eventually defected, became a Presbyterian, his brother and a bunch of cousins and uncles. And uh so at some point I think it just started to feel like, man, to do that is, that's just so cliche, you know, like, that's going into the family business. Um, but it was also accompanied for me by this profound sense of, um, I think ineptitude or just not readiness or youthfulness, uh, because all the pastors in this extended family were really, in my estimation, uh, really good. Um, and I just felt really young and immature and, um... And so I I was fully on this path, even though I had majored in theology as an undergrad. Um, I was fully on a path toward uh, carpentry uh, construction and did that for a couple of years before <clears throat> I had a sense of call. It was sort of weird, but I felt called to go to seminary and I knew which one to go to. And I just applied to the one kind of hoping that I wouldn't get in and, um, but then but i then I did, and um and I wasn't digging it, that is uh I wasn't loving all that work because i didn't I really wasn't that motivated uh not seeing how this was gonna work out for me so my my plan was after trying to leave a couple of times was all right i'll I'll finish seminary, put the degree in a file cabinet, get back into the trades, and then when I'm older and have some more experience, some maturity, that kind of thing. Uh, Then maybe I'll, you know, follow this call into pastoral ministry. So it was, I felt like I got, uh, I kind of got brought in through the back door. It was a little bit of a sneaky maneuver, Um, but one of the significant parts of my own sense of call occurred late in my seminary experience where I was doing some clinical work as a chaplain in a large urban hospital, and... And I wore a clerical collar at my supervisor's recommendation, so you know you just you get to walk in any room you want <clears throat> and patients started treating me I, it it had the effect i think of holding up a mirror, and they over that the course of that year they showed me they were showing me who they saw me to be and that was i think the 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 genesis of this real Kind of internal sense of oh maybe that really is who I am, and um, and so I ended up being ordained right after seminary uh, surprisingly, and um, and for seven years I served as an associate pastor, and I don't think I had a bad day. Maybe maybe I could count the bad days on one hand in seven years, and eventually um, by the time I came was called to start this new church, I had this profound sense, just a uh, just a deep. Kind of embedded sense of this is what I was made for.
0: Well, so much of that comes through in your writings in the book. Um, I, I have to admit, I got a chance to read through letters to a young pastor, and I oftentimes will tell listeners on the podcast this is not a uh, not a book I recommend tearing through quickly. I think it's best read, sort of taking your time, letter by letter. And so I'm just getting started on letters to a long or letters to a young congregation. Um, yeah. I am really curious to hear how the letters came about. Uh, you touch on it briefly in the book, but as you're pastoring, uh, you're sort of in conversation with your father and his work in pastoral ministry. How did how did the two of you decide that letters, particularly talking about pastoral ministry, was going to be beneficial?
1: Well, it it began. I think it was the first year uh, here. At this in this new church development and. So while I had maybe five, four or five bad days uh, previous to that, <laughs> I started having more hard days. Uh, there's a big difference between serving a well-established, healthy church that has history and infrastructure, and starting something from zero. Um, I mean, I, I had no congregation. Um, I was given some land, but it was full of weeds. There was just there was just nothing, and so I felt overwhelmed. Um, pretty uncertain about how to go about this. And um, I think the the grace that I think I had inside of me was just this awareness that if I wasn't careful, that I could treat people as resources or as means to the end of a successful church plant rather than to treat them uh, with the dignity of uh, the baptized. And so I thought I just I need a conversation partner in this, and um, I'd read a bunch of books about church planting, and they uh, and none of them resonated. They all felt like they were gimmicky and um, programmatic, and just nothing re- nothing seemed right for my style. And uh, so I just picked up the phone, kind of on a whim one day, and said, "Hey, I just wonder if you could um, write me some letters." I had. Um, had those letters to uh, let's see, who was it? Letters to Philip and letters to Karen. Remember those? Um they were written to his two children by a therapist. I mm-hmm. forget the author's name now. I think that was maybe what I had in mind. <clears throat> um just ask him to reflect on the pastoral vocation. And uh and secretly I was thinking, you know, he could just respond by saying I'm a little busy I've actually written quite a few books on pastoral theology. <laughs> you might just read those, uh, but instead he said i'd love to do that um and and of course they're not anything like pastoral theology books that he or anyone else has written. they're deeply personal um they're reflective um, and and there's a there's a sense of mutuality you know they're they reflect a conversation that he and I were having over a period of um you know, about ten or fifteen years, um, but you only get that one side of the conversation. You really just you know see his part of it, uh, which is kind of how I prefer it.
0: One of the things that struck me right away when I was reading them was uh, uh, I was trying to think of the best way to describe it, but it it, it it's almost like even when Eugene is writing, he's listening. Uh, the, the letters come across, it's so obvious that he's, he's listening to what you're saying in your letters. There is a kind of mutual respect. Uh, I sort of laughed, I think, at one point in one of the letters, he, uh, says he wishes he could be your associate pastor. Uh, <laughs> there's so much respect for the work you're doing and it never comes across as, you know, I've got these years and this expertise and what the pastoral ministry is. Let me let me inform you. Let me tell you how you how it should go for you. Is is right. that tone that that level of listening? Is that reflective of what it was like growing up with him as a father? Does that does that feel like sort of uh, what it was to grow up in a home learning from him?
1: Yeah, it's very perceptive of you, Chase. Um, I think that was pretty much uh, who he was as a person. And so, you know, asking, you know, who was Eugene Peterson as a pastor, who was he as a father, um, any other role that you might, you know, point to, it's really better answered by asking the question, who was Eugene Peterson as a person? Uh, Because the the essence of who he was uh, flowed in and out of all these other roles. Um, And he was... um, and so, what you picked up on is is absolutely true across the board as he uh he paid attention he listened well he he left lots of space and there was um there was a pervasive humility about him he was always kind of open and learning uh, subject to changing his mind, being corrected he and i had you know a couple of disagreements not really arguments but um it it, it struck me how uh, the, just the humility that he he entered into those conversations with and um and once or twice i remember him saying you know you're you're absolutely right i'm i'm wrong i was wrong about that um that's a that that takes that's i mean that i think just reveals uh something pretty significant about his integrity his humility um, and his um, desire to simply be in relationship with other people.
0: Did you ever find it challenging? Uh, we've sort of alluded to, you know, your father's written all of these books on the spiritual, <laughs> spiritual theology, pastoral theology. Uh, was there ever a challenge for you in trying to form your own identity as a pastor, reconciling what that looked like in your own place, knowing that all of that sort of existed there beside you?
1: Yeah, there's certainly that. I mean, it's, there's a burden that comes with being Eugene Peterson's son. Uh, there's, he, he casts a big shadow, um, and maybe no less in death than in life. And so I think for the first, I don't know, 20-some years of my ordination, um, I professionally distanced from him. Uh, I did not... Uh, lead with that um i I wasn't ashamed of it, didn't try to exactly hide it, but I wasn't um it's not what I talked about. It's like Eugene Peterson is my dad um because I found if that happened too early in my relationships with people that it would distort uh, the relationship that is they would kind of relate to me um or maybe even relate to him vicariously. Um, like, oh my gosh, you're Eugene Peterson's son. And that was, um, that wasn't helpful to me, uh, when I was trying to establish my own, uh, vocational identity and pastoral voice. Um, and so we were no less close during that time, but it just wasn't, we didn't do very much publicly. And then actually one of his letters I think refers to this, uh, was my coming out. Kind of came out more publicly <laughs> out of the closet and, um, and I just felt like, geez, you know, he's getting older, I'm older, I know who I am now, and um I'm proud to be his son. And so I'm not I'm not gonna hide that from anybody anymore. Um and and that was about the right time, I think, in terms of I'm I'm well established in who I am and um again, just you know, really glad and proud to be his son.
0: Well, it reminds me of one of the places in the letters where, uh, I love the phrase, he talks about being uh, being strategic about being personal, which is this sort of play on, you know, what being strategic usually tends to be is depersonalizing, but this sort of intentional effort to be a person, to be personal. Um, as you reflect on that, that lesson that I think characterizes so much of his work, what is the significance of trying to be personal, be a person in ministry, and why is that something that's so hard to hold on to?
1: Yeah, this is something, you know, he he and I talked about this a lot, and he certainly struggled with it as his notoriety escalated, and he found himself being um, kind of thrust into this celebrity status culture. Um, I remember one conversation, we were together in Montana, and he'd been invited to speak at some, you know, large arena event, tens of thousands of people in South America, and and he was kind of hemming and, hawing and and finally I said, "What what are you what are you concerned about here, Dad? What's what's your reluctance in not just saying yes?" And he uh, this this has haunted me to this day. He looked me straight in the eye and said, "Eric, I'm afraid of losing my soul." And so he had this awareness that if, it's kind of like believing your own press, right? That if he was if he continued on that trajectory toward being on the big platforms, um, you know, the uh, the big screens, and, um, and these impersonal or even depersonalizing environments, that that would be... Uh, that that would do great damage to him as a person. And it was from that point on that, with very few exceptions, he declined the big events, certainly the arena events. And he... Um, he pretty much just said yes to the smaller, in-person, conversational pastor retreats, little conferences, preaching the sermon for an ordination of a former student, that kind of thing. Um, And I think the reason he had that clear instinct um, that protected him is because his life was so firmly rooted in the Incarnation. Um, He understood that uh, virtually everything, maybe everything, that's of essence in the gospel flows out of relationships. And if it's not relational, it's—I um, um, don't want to overstate this, but I, I think it's—it uh, can—it's it, probably contrary to the gospel. Um, he might say antichrist.
0: Uh, I struggle with the uh, with that same experience in knowing that it's not just. It's not just the pressure to be sort of a mega church pastor or, or or have that kind of success, but even uh even within this realm of writing that he's so often associated with these days, as you know, as a writer yourself, there's so many conversations around platform and around following and the uh it can be a real challenge to try to do that work like I think you've done it your father's done it holding on to the personalness of that work when the the system itself feels like it's constantly abstracting you into a product or into a platform uh, have you wrestled with that as you've pursued your own writing i mean this is a second set of books out have you experienced that challenge for yourself
1: oh i don't i don't think so um not at least not yet <laughs> <laughs> um i'm not i'm not very well known and i don't think i ever will be um Eugene, you know, because of the books he sold, particularly the the message, um, was well known. He was kind of a household name uh among certain circles within the uh the country, the world really. Um and uh I mean there's something about being the pastor of a smaller church and being the father of children that keeps one pretty grounded in the here and now, and it's pretty humbling. I mean, the work of a pastor is, it's pretty modest. Um, it's pretty incremental. Um, it's not very, you know, glorious and most of what we do is unknown. It's kind of hidden. Um, it feels like significant work, but it's not, um, it's not, uh, you know, aside from Sunday morning worship, it's not seen by very many people. So, I think for Eugene in the years that he was a pastor and then later a teacher, that became the grounding environment in kind of keeping him relationally um, connected. Um, and my mother was probably more sophisticated and uh, in, in relational, kind of the relational language anyway. Um, my dad could have, he could have been a, you know, an academic, scholar, monk, he could have just, you know, holed up in his study and produced, but um, she kept pe- bringing people into the house. Um, and so even after he retired from Regent College, where he was teaching, and they were, um, you know, off in Montana on Flathead Lake, um, he was he was pulling together some text data for his CPA, I guess, one year. And, And uh, we were talking on the phone. He said, "I just realized after looking through my calendar that we had 200 overnight guests this last year." And so that again, it was just the way that he continued to be connected to people. It was personal. It was relational. uh, Nothing he could write, he he could not get away with just being abstract. It had to be um, personal.
0: It seems like that's a big theme of the letters and also this idea of what does it mean to be a pastor, which um, could sound like something that out of the gate you just lay down a definition for. This is what a pastor is. But so many of the letters are exploring what is unique about being a pastor in in his context in his day in your context uh this idea of figuring out the unique role of a pastor how did the letters help develop that for you and what were some of the takeaways of this uniqueness of pastoral life that that you picked up through that correspondence
1: yeah it's um i mean i think the, the the simplest way for me to say this is i think the role of a pastor is to keep um, the the people given to us, typically a congregation in our care, God attentive and God responsive, and we do that through personal conversations, uh, just the, that those relationships, and um, and but and primarily through um, language by lifting up the Word of God, making sure that it's being um, re. Translated, or reinterpreted, and heard in each uh, context. So it's in those particularities of text and people and time and place uh, that the Word of God continues to speak, um, in order to uh, do the work. I think of you know forming these little congregations or large congregations into um, into the body of Christ, which is. Uh, I want to be quick to say not a metaphor it, it really is the the uh the embodied form of Jesus in the world um so that that's the that's the work uh, that's been given to us and and i and I guess what I sort of learned and relaxed in in kind of watching listening to being in conversation with Eugene is every every pastor in every generation. Has to figure that out. That fundamental vocational identity, the care, the cure of souls, um, in their own way. That is, we're all just figuring this out. And you know, COVID is a is a great example of. Um, uh, we're having to figure that out again. That is the the challenges that this season impose upon us, and uh, make the. The essence of our work, no less important. It's the same work, keeping a congregation God-attentive, God-responsive, but we are now having to figure out some new ways to do that in order for it to work.
0: In one of the chapters, Eugene talks about a sense of alienation in trying to figure that work out, uh, and he concludes in what he calls a holy discontentment. Uh, have you experienced, uh, maybe you could speak to his experience of of why this work can sometimes feel alienating, even amongst uh, peers? And what is that holy detachment that, that he found uh, useful language for working his way through that?
1: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you'd think that those are two different things. Um, um, uh, you know, I think it's... Um, I think it comes from just the clash of kingdoms, and that uh, and the clash of values. Uh, we live in a world that has a set of values related to, um, you know, empire or just cultural norms and values, and we're trying to honor, live, embody, and lift up and proclaim the values of the kingdom of God, and and those two. Um, rarely resonate. And so I I think that there should be this sense of alienation. Like, I don't belong here. This is not my home. Um, And so, you know, one of the... um, I think one of the... uh, I think one of the ways we grow, uh, that is, I think part of the, the work of discipleship is to be very careful and cautious about the things to which we give our affection, uh, because it's what we love that, you know, betrays where our hearts are. Um, and so, you know, the great spiritual masters, you know, uh, talked frequently about that sense of detachment. Um, so we, so that our love, uh, so that we're not carried away by our, our affections or, or our loves, uh this world, um, so that that just seems kind of typical of, of anyone who's trying to live faithfully. Is we don't really quite belong here. This is we should never feel quite at home, and um, and Eugene I think had that sense of uneasiness in his own denominational tribe. Uh, like I don't know if I quite fit here. Um, you know he grew up assemblies of God, became Presbyterian. Um, but there was never really any sense of ecclesiastical home for him. He was always a little bit of a a loner. And um, so I I think he just, he often reflected about that, kind of wondered why that was, why don't I fit in um, where, you know, (laughs) I I got passed over when membership cards were handed out. And uh, and I think that's one of the, the gifts of his life is he never really quite fit anywhere. And so he had this, more of a prophetic voice that allowed us to kind of see and hear things that weren't yet
0: yeah, that comes through so clear. And uh, they, the letters, are they reflect this sort of deep reflection. But one of the things I also really enjoyed is there's moments you see uh, sort of his humor, his wittiness, they come across. I even love some of them that, you know, as you've mentioned, so many guests, many of the letters will close with who's coming to visit or who's been in their home or what they're working on for dinners. And uh, I imagine right. at, at some point these letters must have been, you know, in a, a folder, print, you know, uh, papers in a folder somewhere in your office or in your home. Uh, when Where did the idea come from to take them and put them into a book and and I also have to say it's uh, uh as somebody who's who can trace so much of my own vocational identity as a pastor back to your to your dad's work it's it's an incredible gift your willingness to share those with people and so uh, I owe you a big thank you for this this new edition that gets to set on my shelf with the other books but where did that idea come from to make them public
1: Well, it was kind of late. I mean, I he'd written that last letter, you know, years ago. Um but I, you know, I found myself, I just kept going back to them. I found that they had a re-centering, re-grounding, reorienting effect. Um, and so I, I had them a file, and, uh, and I would just kind of pull them out sometimes and reread them. And at some point realized, these are durable. Um, I don't know if they're timeless, but man, there's a lot of wisdom here that, um, that's standing up to time. And I've had these now for a while. There was a winter that they, my parents were living with us. We had built an addition to our house, kind of a, an apartment, self-standing or self-sufficient. Um, and the idea was that in the event that they would someday end up living with us, that this was going to be like a six-week trial period in the winter in order to give them a frame of reference. And um, and this is a point in my dad's life when he was diminishing pretty rapidly certainly cognitively, and, um, and, uh, but I just I ran this idea by him. I said, what would you think about sharing these with others? These, they've been so meaningful to me, Dad. And, and he said, well, yeah, you know, I think that's a good idea. And so um, for those weeks, I would just come home after work, bring them their mail, sit on the floor in this little living room where there's a fireplace, and I'd read one of the letters out loud to him. And um, and he just forgot all about these, you know. And he'd close his eyes, listen, kind of caress his fingers, hands, as I was reading. And then I'd get to the, you know, the closing, which was usually either love, Dad, or peace of the Lord, Dad. And he'd open his eyes, and he'd say, wow, that's really good. <laughs> and I'd say, yeah, it is, Dad. You wrote it. I did? Well. It's really good. <laughs> so even at that point, you know, he he recognized that they, that they were good. That there's you know a lot of good wisdom in there, and uh, it's been gratifying for me to you know receive some correspondence from pastors around the world in the last several weeks who have said these um, these letters. Um, I think I was about to go off the rails. I think I was losing my way. These letters brought me back. I think I'm I'm now centered in this vocation for the duration of my ministry. Uh, So that, you know, I I wrestled a little bit with it, whether they should go out, they're so personal, and it almost felt um, indulgent, I guess, to share them, because he's so generous in his affection and pride in me. Uh, But that that early evidence is that they, they do have, they have been meaningful for people. So I hope that will be the case in the future, that, uh, both younger and older pastors will find some guidance and encouragement from um, from one of our sages. He's he's one of the wise ones.
0: They do that so well in that so much of his work for me, um, it's never about, and I think he would agree with this, it's never about uh, advice. It's never about him saying, look at what I've figured out, you know, come do what I've done, be a pastor like I've been a pastor. What I always get from his work is a sense of dignity the place that I'm in the work that's before me I pastor a congregation of about 80 people um, and where so much of the so much of the content if I could use that sort of abstract word that seems to come into my, my my circle as a pastor is about how to do the next thing or see the next thing grow the next thing his work always provides kind of A sense of dignity for what's there, for the work I'm already doing, the place I'm already in. And that's such an incredible gift for, as you've put it, for somebody who's been in ministry for some time or who may be new to it, to just be able to accept with gratitude that work before you. Um, One of the things I've tried to explore on the podcast for some time is, is this connection between pastoral ministry and writing. For me, those two things have really become more integrated and, and more more important to supporting each other than early on I realized they would. When you think about your father's time pastoring and also writing, how, how did those things integrate? And then for you, as you've also been doing your own writing, how do you see those things integrated for yourself?
1: Well, the, I mean, the common denominator, of course, is words. We are curators of language, uh, whether it's the, the spoken word or the written word. Uh, and that's the primary means that God has chosen for both creation and redemption. A word as it's spoken, um, as it's enacted in the sacraments, as it's incarnated in the flesh of Jesus, it's the word that is uh, that has the power it's the potency to effect transformation, um, in this world. It's, it's, it's the agency of, of the coming kingdom. Um, and so, uh, you know, challenging for us in these days is, is a, a culture or just an ethos that, that is ruining words. Words are being used so badly. Language is being distorted and, um, used for nefarious purposes, and so it seems to me that pastors—I um, think pastors should think of themselves as pastor writers. Um, in in as much as we are caring for words, uh, using them as um, as these agents, uh, you know, divine agents. I think that was a clearer identity for my dad, a pastor writer. He always. Know, knew himself to be a writer. Uh, that came much later for me. Again, uh, reluctance being the theme of my life, and um, and but that, but I had an experience uh, that left me uh, in this posture of surrender, uh, and the prayer that accompanied it was, "If you prompt me, I will write it," um, and that led to the first book, um, and then that, of course, led to the, to the other two. Uh, but that's not my great ambition that is to, to publish um, I, I do write regularly for my congregation because so I think that's one of the ways that word gets infused into congregations those the words um, are these seeds of um, of new life and of you know kind of developing a Christian worldview a cosmology that you know uh, the that gathers up the imagination in a way that says, "Oh, the kingdom of God." <laughs> um, so, I think we need to find every way to use the word, spoken and written, uh, that we possibly can. Um, does that does that answer your question?
0: It does, and it, and it transitions well to um, the second book is letters you've written to your congregation, which, as soon as I pick it, picked it up, was sort of like a light bulb moment for me. I've done this in a few important milestones in our church, or when there's been a few things that I felt like as a pastor I needed to address with the congregation that didn't fit well in that sort of Sunday worship. Um, I've, I've written to my church before. I've done this, but not in the same sort of uh, intentional and comprehensive way that you have. When, when, did, when did that idea open up to you, that these format of writing letters like you had done between you and your father was also this opportunity between you and a congregation?
1: Yeah, I kind of stumbled into it. It was just um, sort of a monthly newsletter originally, um, but that and those early ones are uh, none of those show up in the book because uh, it wasn't it wasn't very good writing for one thing, but it was also more just kind of logistics. Here are the nuts and bolts of um, of a new church development. Here's how we're going to organize, and here's where we're meeting, and just that sort of thing. And then once we had some infrastructure in place in our first building. Um, erected, then those gradually, and I think I just became a better writer. I think I started paying uh, better attention to uh, the craft of language, um, and and so it just became an additional uh, uh, means, another another point of contact, uh, in addition to the Sunday sermon. Of helping to shape a congregation's imagination, um, in my context, it seems that only about twenty percent of the congregation and there are probably three hundred people that call this their church home, twenty percent um, are in worship every sunday and and the rest are much more sporadic. There are a lot of people for whom every four or six weeks that's regular you know worship. <laughs> And it's really difficult, I found, to develop um, a sense of discipleship that, with, that, uh, with that level of uh, infrequency. And so the, the monthly letter was just another way to get uh, a message into people's homes and hearts and minds um, to help just do the work of, um, of what I was also trying to do on Sunday mornings.
0: Well, it's a great representation of this personalness of ministry. Just the concept of, of a letter to my congregation feels pastoral in some significant way yeah. to me. Um, if you reflect on, you know, and I, by all means, people should pick up the book. I think they are a great reflection of, of yours, your father's views on ministry, views on the pastoral vocation, the pastoral work. Um, but there is a lot of uh, a lot of complaining when it comes to being a pastor. A lot to find wrong. A lot to feel discouraged about. But when you look at your time. You look at your writings, your thoughts on what it is to be a pastor. Um, I'd love to hear you reflect on maybe what you love about being a pastor, what you find to be a gift of the pastoral life.
1: Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know if love is the right word. Um, I mean, there there are moments when I feel like I delight in the work. Um, but I, as I look back on my life, and I'm I'm 57 years old now, I think I've been ordained for 30 years. And, you know, my lifelong prayer, this, this started when I was a boy, is I just want to be where you want me to be. I want to be your man. You know, um, show me show me what to do. Um, I have this clear sense. I want to be a part of what God is doing in the world. And for me, I never associated um, meaningful with easy. Uh, so I think being a pastor is actually pretty hard. And... And I'm kind of tired right now, as most of us are, I think, trying to you know, navigate our way through a pandemic. And uh, we're kind of exhausted. Um, it, it feels like terribly significant work. It feels like there's a lot at stake. Um, it feels to me like I can't do anything of more importance because of the consequences. So I feel like I'm working as hard as ever, maybe more so, um, because the stakes are so high. And um, and I think this is a time for us, if we've lost it, to recover a prophetic voice and to speak God's Word as clearly and compellingly as possible in this culture that's saturated with lies. Um, so I, I guess I, I love being a pastor, and since this is what I was made for, this is what God made me to do. Um, that doesn't mean it's easy and it doesn't mean I'm always having fun, (laughs) but it does mean that I believe it's meaningful, it's significant, uh, it's consequential. Um, but I, the one thing I would add to that, I guess, is simply, I don't think we ever have permission to complain about our congregations. These are the people and the context that have, have been given to us for a particular season, And I think um, it behooves us to honor them well, to treat them with dignity, um, and to be very, very uh, discreet when it comes to uh, complaining about people.
0: Yeah, I'm struck by the word meaningful that you use. And uh, one of the ways I often like to close out these conversations is by asking guests if they might be willing to, to pray with us. And uh, I wonder if, you know, a couple of the words that have come out from this conversation is the dignity that I think your dad's writing provided to pastors. And then to add to it, this word you use, the meaningfulness of the work before us. Particularly in this time where I know there's many pastors who have quite literally been labeled unessential in their work, uh, yet we know nothing could be further from the truth. This work, as difficult as it is, is meaningful, and there is dignity dignity to this task before us. So uh, maybe if you wouldn't mind uh, wherever the Lord leads, but also that uh, the pastors who are listening might find a sense of that dignity, a sense of that meaningfulness to the work that they're engaging in at this moment.
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. The the context for this, you know, one of the letters that he writes uh, refers to John Henry Newman, who was the great intellect in England at the time. And he went to, um, I think it was Birmingham, and all of his peers were critical of him, saying, you know, you could go to any pulpit in Europe and you go to Birmingham. And, um, and Newman said, uh, people in Birmingham have souls, too. And that was, a, that was a turning point for Eugene, who I think was feeling a bit un- underappreciated where he was, and um, came to just adopt this as his own. People in Bel Air, Maryland have souls, too. Um, I came to it a little differently um, by viewing people through the lens, the sacramental lens of the baptized. These are the baptized. Uh, that means they are inherently uh, sanctified, set apart, holy, children of God. Uh, but that's that has got to be uh, the, the the fundamental basis of our relationships is to think of the other as the holy other.
0: Yeah, that's helpful. I often think of. Uh, for me, that moment came. If I could sort of add it in before we pray, I uh, um, my wife and I were on a vacation to Telluride, Colorado, one year, and we were riding this gondola up the side of the mountain. And you know, there's elk grazing and the waterfall at the end of the sure. Box Canyon. I mean, it's just gorgeous. We don't have mountains like that where I live and, and we're riding with a lady who, uh, kind of sort of an eccentric wealthy looking lady who was just my wife and I and her and she was explaining that she lived in the ski resort at the top of this, uh, top of Telluride, you know, place like Oprah Winfrey has a home there. Right. And so she asked where we were from, and I said, Well, we live in Springfield, Missouri. And she just immediately interrupted us and said, Is that near Branson, Missouri? Which I'm about 40 minutes from Branson, if you're familiar with it. And uh, I said, Yeah, we're, we're pretty close to there. And she said, My husband and I think Branson is the most beautiful place in this country. We vacation there every year. Well, and my wife and I started joking, thinking, she, started laughing, thinking she was joking for a moment, and then later on realized. Uh, definitively, I think probably uh, uh, Telluride is prettier than Branson. But it's interesting, people vacation to the places we live and we vacation to the places they live. And it, I don't know, it uh, opened up this this window for me of thinking, is there more to where I am that I'm missing, that having been here and grown up here that I, I don't see anymore? And for me, it was a real, it was a moment like you're describing of recognizing There's no unholy place. There's no. There's no better place um, that God work in creation and in people is happening here in the same way He is all the other places I might dream of moving to to be a pastor. So I had that same sense of sort of dignity to this place and these people coming Mm -hmm. in. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe that's a, a great thing you could sort of lead in prayer that pastors listening might find that for their place as well.
1: Yeah, that's really well said, Chase. Thank you. Let's pray. God, we all follow your voice. You call us into existence, and you call us to a specific identity as children of God. You give us specific um, purposes that are getting worked out in our daily lives. Uh, A lot of this, we don't choose. It's given to us. We recommit ourselves here now to trust your voice. Uh, to settle in where we are, to recommit to where we are, to who we're with, to this holy burden that you've placed on our lives, to be ambassadors for Christ, mouthpieces of the Word of God, conduits of the Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you'll give us what we need for the living of these days, a grace and a strength that is sufficient for the challenges of uh, this season. Um, May we not grow weary in doing good as we continue to uh, follow this voice, the voice of Jesus Christ. Amen.
0: Amen. Well, the two books we've been talking about, Letters to a Young Congregation, Nurturing the Growth of a Faithful Church, and Letters to a Young Pastor, Timothy, Conversations Between Father and Son, they're out this year from Nav Press. And, um, Eric, I just want to end again by saying thank you for the generosity of your words, but also the generosity of sharing such intimate moments with your father. His words, they're, uh, they're a treasure to many of us. Words I didn't expect to get after his passing, but to have more to read from him is, is an incredible gift. And I know that comes because of your willingness to share them. So thank you.
1: Mm, mm, you're very welcome. Thank you for the conversation, Chase.
0: As always, you can find show notes for today's episode by going to PastorWriter.com slash 128. There you'll find information about Eric Peterson as well as links to both of the books that we've been talking about, Letters to a Young Pastor and Letters to a Young Congregation. You might also consider subscribing, if you haven't already, to wherever you listen to podcasts and maybe taking a moment to leave a rating or typing out a review. I always appreciate it when you take the time to do that. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time.